0: It's been a busy week, hasn't it? Sure has. Yeah, we got our uh Mike LaDon interview up. We got our uh scheduling a lot of other stuff. Last week's program, it's uh it's been an adult music kind of week. Oh man, I got this squeaky chair this week. It's kinda it's kinda
1: with all that humidity those... from the rainy season coming in, things are starting to make funny noises.
0: Uh, you think that's what it is? It could oh be. boy, that's all I need.
1: <laughs> Unless <laughs> well, it's your elbows. surprises. Hmm? No, it's I'm definitely listening. not
0: my elbows. I'm still, still not that old yet, Okay, but getting there.
1: <laughs> Good to know. Well, <laughs> if you haven't checked out the Mike Adon interview, it was released as a special episode. So please go check that out. We put that out on Friday. And yeah, really- I want to
0: say I checked it out and I thought it was great actually, because I didn't really hear it when we were doing it because we were too busy doing it. You know, so I thought it was uh really interesting. He said, he said a lot of really interesting things. I, that kind of, a that of I had ins- forgotten about while we were doing it.
1: Insight and funny stories, ideas yeah. about music for a whole, almost a whole hour. So uh, if you haven't checked that out, uh, be sure to do that. Hmm. But tonight we're here for episode 18 of Adult yeah. Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Before we get going, I'd like to remind the listeners that in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description... There's also a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, where you can follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. You can also listen to our podcast on Deezer as well as the music. And uh, if you can't see the full descriptions or list of the music on whatever app you're listening to us on, please uh, check out our host site on Podbean, where everything is neat and tidy. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. If you take a few minutes to give us a ranking or write a review, it'll help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which helps us grow our audience. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com.
0: Yeah, probably we're up to episode eighteen. That means our podcast is old enough to vote.
1: That's a scary thought
0: in the United States. But here's the question: Will it, or will it just stay home? <laughs> we'll have I don't to know. see. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Maybe someone has already voted for us. That's possible too.
0: We'll find out. Maybe it's voting. Maybe it's already voting for us. Maybe we'll have it's to see. Voting.
1: Oh, okay. let's see. Where are we going to start out in the classical category All right, tonight? we're
0: going to go into classical music. You know, I just realized I was kind of I had all these like classical recordings backed up and now I'm kind of out of well, not out of them, out of classical recordings. I got had to have to start planning ahead again cuz I kind of let these all We're finally at the end of my initial list of things I wanted to talk about. Uh-oh. But anyway, I'm sorry to say no baroque this week, but don't worry, that will be remedied. Next week. Okay, because oh. there's some, there are one or two very new, good new Baroque recordings out. But there is a kind of, we can't really say Baroque like, but we can, uh, in a sense, recording out. Um, the first thing we're going to talk about this week is um, the third of the solo violin releases that I was talking about a few weeks ago. We had already heard about of his Paganini Caprices. Then last week we did uh, um Box sonatas and partitas, and this is the third one. This is James Ennis's um, sonatas for solo by Bi- violin. Right, I'm living in Japan here. Sonata for solo violin by Eugène Ise. Okay, and these are um, the third of the. Th- these are these are really the three big pillars of solo, vi- solo violin music. And then there's the Bartok sonata, but but that there, there isn't a recording of that that's currently new. So we're not going to talk about that one now, but these are, um, I don't, I don't know what I want to say about the works, but I want to say, um, of the three recordings we've heard so far, this, this one, I, I almost, I almost hesitate to say, because I love the Hadelich uh, so much last week. This one was absolutely spectacular. And, uh, I'm not like Terribly familiar with these uh, works. I mean, I do have two other recordings of them uh, One of them is by Alina Ibragimova. She recorded these like earlier in her career And the other one is by Ty Murray and she, she is was Ty Murray. God, I don't remember the name. I'm so bad at this Um, And that one was pretty good. The, the Ibergimova one was really excellent, but this one really is It's a major wow. I thought I was just riveted the whole way through. Anyway, let's uh, take a look at what we have there. Now, first of all, James Ennis um came to my attention through he's just touted in, in the really the British press a lot and really the Worldwide Press. He's really one of the world's great violinists. He has this very sweet tone with a nougaty center to it, which um doesn't always come through here because these these works require a lot of uh Different expressions, you know, different sorts of tones, and he really keeps it, he keeps us interested uh, all the way through. Uh, he recorded these, and as did Ibragimova, um, during the uh, COVID crisis he was like alone in his room and he was really the most extreme of all of the uh solo violin uh projects he actually set up a home studio in order to record these and stayed up into the wee hours of the morning when there was no traffic outside his window in order to record these works and it just sounds great it's it's a fantastic violin recording um i didn't actually check to see if he had an engineer with him or if he just did all this himself but it's uh it's a pretty impressive recording and performance. Produced and engineered by James Ennis and Simon And he had a little help. But he um he did he did it himself. He did it uh with a with a partner. Anyway, I was pretty impressed by the sound as w- as I was with the performance. Okay. Let's go through these. Um the f- there are six of these. Sonatas for solo violin and he reco- he uh dedicated the composer Isse, recorded um uh recorded um dedicated these to six very famous violin violinists of the day okay just the fact that they're six sonatas also kind of ties in with Bach okay the first um okay um one of the uh, main things about these uh, recordings is that Ennis doesn't draw attention to the technique you're it's these are very musical um performances um, in fact, listening to these, they're so sweetly done and just kind of like gigantic passion and gorgeous melodies that you wouldn't even really notice. Um yeah, that's that, what I said. Um, they yeah. sound,
1: when you listen to what's actually being done, these yeah. are really incredibly difficult to play, but Ennis plays them with like, this great finesse and yeah. the tone is always beautiful. Yeah, and he's got an amazing tone. He, so he... He's not trying to impress you with his, uh, you know, technical prowess, but it's obvious that these are very difficult to play. But he keeps everything, you know, completely musical the whole time.
0: Yeah, I'm going to go through a little bit of the uh, the difficulties here and the way he sort of makes them. He just seems so. I hate to use effortless because there's other there's something else that he does. I'll mention it when it comes up. All right, sonata number one, this is modeled after the first Bach Violin Sonata in G minor that was that we talked about last week in the sonatas and partitas, you know the very famous opening movement. Um, and uh, this was inspired by Josef Ziegertis playing. Uh, he's the dedicatee. Uh, the grave has a nice tone and ghostly. There are a lot of sul ponticello on this. We didn't hear that much in uh, Paganini. Actually, I don't know that we heard it at all. Sul ponticello is when you bow on the uh, the strings um, behind the bridge, and it gives this kind of weird, kind of thin, ghostly kind of tone. You know, it's kind of kind of kind of thing. Um, the thing about this, and you hear this right away in in this first night, and especially in the fugue that follows. Um, when there are two voices, uh, Ennis is able to create the illusion that you're hearing a violin duo, and it's because of these amazing tapered entrances that he does for all of the voices. While one is playing at full strength, the other one will enter a little bit more quietly. It's incredible to think that one person is doing this, it's it's really amazing. Um, yeah, it's where you're hearing a duo. Uh, the fugato. and This is all again. I said this is modeled after that first box. And uh, there's a fugato. There's a fugue in that one actually. This is this one is a fugato, which is kind of starts like a fugue, but sort of goes off in its own direction. It doesn't follow the um, strict fugue rules. Okay, it's played very passionately. I loved this actually. Beautifully shaped melody throughout all of the melodies um, in the in the various um, voices. Just beautifully shaped. Really an incredible achievement. Lots of multiple stopping on this, needless to say, because it's a fugue. Okay. Uh, The uh, third movement is uh, kind of a... It's a slow movement. Scherzoso. It's a little uh, sweeter. And then the finale is Combrio, which has this um, uh, very fast figuration to it. Really really modeled after that uh, Bach um, sonata. The second sonata, which kind of really caught my attention a lot is it was dedicated to Jacques Thibault and the reason it caught my attention is because it starts out with a direct quote from Bach's E-Major Partita which we heard we talked about last week that's the very last one the really sunny one Um, that you know the the last partita number three all of these works um, in all the movements in this particular sonata um, are have a title and they're usually named after well, the first two are named after a feeling. The first one is called Obsession. And what might that obsession be? Well, we hear the Dies uh, Irae from the um, Catholic uh, Mass for the Dead. Yeah, you know, Dies Irae, Dies It repeats a lot. In, in fact, we hear it in all four movements. So the obsession is apparently with death. I wonder what that says about its dedicatee, Jacques Um By the way, it quotes the... Uh, Major major partita because um, Thibaut liked to warm up with that before he gave a concert. So it's kind of a little kind of nod at, at his personality there. Okay. So I, apparently he was uh, obsessed with death. I really loved the second movement of this, the melancholia. Uh, it's very contrast. The whole thing is muted and we get this gorgeous muted tone uh, throughout this. I was really leaning in, you know, off my chair just to kind of like pick it up. Um, the violin duo illusion, that's sounding like there's two violins in a, you know, in, in a violin duo is very, that illusion is very strong here. Uh, double stop melodies, kind of, you know, the tapered entrances and, and exits, really great. And it ends with these breathtaking muted pianissimos. And, uh, the very last thing you hear is the full Dies theme. It kind of, it kind of leaves you off lamenting, I guess, about the inevitability of death, which is really what we started out this entire uh, podcast with back in episode one, <laughs> if you remember. <laughs> okay, an entire album about death. <laughs> we're, we're always gonna, if you're listening to classical music, we're always going to be coming back to that somewhere. It comes up a lot, which is why it's music for adults, I guess. Okay, the uh, Danse des hombre, with the Dance of the Shadows. It starts with uh, pizzicato, which is kind of a nice um, yes. new effect here. It outlines kind of a renaissance uh, rhythm and dance, kind of sounds like a dance, and the melody states the theme, and then it goes into six variations, Um, all not pizzicato. Um, More violent duo illusion here, and then finally, oh, and also, Ennis uh, at the very end uh, plays a perfectly intoned high note that just took my breath away, I was like, it was gorgeous. Just, he just hits, he goes way up high on the, um, on the violin and, uh, the, you know, and, uh, just, you know, hits this note perfectly and just at the perfect volume. It's fa- fairly quiet, really amazing. Uh, make sure you hear that if you, if you listen to this recording, which I hope you will. Okay. And the, uh, the last movement is, uh, Le, F- Le Furie, which is about the, uh, refers to the characters from Greek myth who take vengeance on those who swear false oaths they kind of chase them around and harass them okay and um, we this is a pretty aggressive piece as you might imagine if you know anything about those characters Uh, the opening kind of sounds like a grotesque dance and we hear the flapping of wings and some of the louder outbursts the the rhythm is kind of like "Eh, eh, eh, eh." it kind of sounds it kind of has these papery wing sound Uh, very cool Okay, this is some su ponticello playing, which I guess is appropriate for these characters too, uh, in the middle section, and um, we end. In the fo- in the the third sonata dedicated to G- Giorgianescu, um, who was a fairly well known composer as well, is in one movement. This is the first of the one movement sonatas. It starts softly and slowly, and the melody builds up to an immediate climax and descends weepily. Okay, the, it's called the ballade, so it kind of has this sort of um, story sense to it. Uh, the movement grows more impassioned uh, with all kinds of double-stopping, and there are Central European folk elements uh, to kind of give a nod to the dedicatee's um, uh, origins in Eastern Europe. All right, the fourth sonata by Fritz Kreisler, well, not by Fritz Kreisler, it's dedicated to Fritz K- Kreisler, who also composed a lot of... Um, short works and one of the great violinists of the day. Um he's gonna appear later uh on this episode as well. Um the first movement is an Aleman, which is also a dance that comes up a lot in um you know Baroque you're a dance that comes up in a lot of box um, suites. And this was uh I guess the Allemande and the following Saraband are done for uh Chrysler's Baroque composition style. He wrote a lot of miniatures and i guess he liked writing in that baroque style so he is uh pointing that out here um the aleman though here it doesn't sound like a dance it doesn't really have a rhythm that you can kind of imagine this particular dance being done to it's usually pretty slow but but it has the it has the aleman. a lot of times an aleman it doesn't really refer to the rhythm as and the speed as much as the uh the uh in the eighth note at the beginning that kind of anticipates the downbeat um that happens in a corrente too which we don't have here um, it's it's very dramatic for uh, an allemand, I have to say. So I'm kind of wondering what uh, what's up with that. Um, it's more like a drama, okay. The second movement is a sarabande. Uh, Issei links the uh, Issei likes these, I, I guess, because he does them a lot. Um, this opens pizzicato again, okay, as the other sarabande did in um, Sonata Two, and um, it it has um some legato counterpoint double stopped again. There's a lot of double stopping and all of these pieces really demanding on the violinist. Um, and the melody rather nicely switches to, uh, triplets kind of yes. midway through. Yeah. I really like that. Um, and it ups the virtuosic ante as well, because the triplets are being played a while. <laughs> another. Yeah. like drone or melodies being played with the other finger man th- it's not just double stopping i'm saying the word double stopping but there's a lot of triple and even quadruple stopping happening in these works i'm not i didn't really uh kind of stop and fi- try to figure out you know how much or, you know or look out look for a score and figure out exactly what's happening but there's all kinds of uh hair raising uh <laughs> technique yeah. going on uh gorgeous harmonics at the end i love harmonics on yeah, string instruments in general and a few more pizzicato chords to round it out. The third movement is a finale. It's a fast Bach like figuration with a more melodic middle section. So, another five is um, dedicated to Matthew Crickboom, who was one of um, Isse's uh, students. He's also Belgian, like um, Isse was. Crickboom uh, was said to be Isse's best pupil. Uh, the first movement is kind of nice. It's an Aurora. Which uh, and it uh, depicts like the sunrise with kind of these um, the sounds of rustling and light, you know, the world coming to life as the sun um, as the day begins all done on us this has been done quite a bit in uh, classical music but I think this is the only time it's been done on a single in- violin instrument uh, on a single violin like this it's really amazing yeah I like um, how he does
1: the bowing yeah. and plucking at the same time yeah. it's like <laughs> wow. Well, I had yeah. that I have that written here too. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's, it, it's pretty amazing. So, that's another new effect that can kind of make your ears sort of, uh, you know, kind of uh, pick up, you know. Uh, this full bristling sunlight by the close of the movement. And the second movement is a dance rustique, a or or rustic dance. A lot of double stop, down bowed rhythmic fragments, and a lot of it's in 5 4. Which is kind of odd for a rustic dance. Usually, they're kind of square sounding in four-four, and the middle section has um, okay. It's kind of similar, dancy rhythms, and the, finally, the sixth um, sonata is um, a single movement one dedicated to another one of Vise's uh, pupils, uh, Manuel Quiroga, who was uh, Spanish. Um, he had to abandon his career due to a road accident due to a road accident in the forties. Sadly. It's a one movement and it's probably the most virtuosic of the six. Um it's just labeled Allegro Giusto, and it's got a lot of figuration with multi-stop chords and a pretty impressive run up the violin's range. There are a lot of gorgeous flourishes in this piece, and there's even a habaneta rhythm at the in the in the final part of the movement to indicate Quiroga's nationality. This is a, an enjoyable listen all the way through. Um it's it's musically very engaging and uh it doesn't sound like a solo violin. It actually sounds like a violin duo most of the way. The effects are really incredible, as is the playing. And I think we've said what we wanted to, at least I said, what we wanted to say about the uh, playing so far. Um, it, it doesn't draw attention to the technique, um, but really m- puts these very musical um, pieces across. I was a little surprised by this because... Uh, I, I I this is a violinist I really enjoy listening to and uh this is really one of the best recordings I've heard from him. Um highly, highly recommended. Uh give it a listen if you like especially if you like violin playing. This is a must hear.
1: Yeah, even I like this one a lot, and I'm not a fan of solo violin uh works at length, but I was engaged right to the end, uh, mainly because he has a gorgeous tone. Yeah. It's always well centered and uh has a great warmth to it. And despite the technical difficulty of the pieces, he never sounds like he's working hard, trying to impress or just going through the motions. He actually finds the right spots uh, to hit with lots of passion so he can feel the intended emotion in the compositions. My personal favorites are four and five, just for the overall arc of the compositions and the different places they took me to. So I like the... Uh,
0: Yes, yeah, Sonata's yeah, four be and honest,
1: five are the best.
0: To be honest, I liked all of them. Um no, they're fact, all great, I found, yeah. I, I found this to be a very easy listening, and that was not the case, say, with the Paganini, you know, even, you know, right, which was kind of like, I, I felt like I had to, like, kind of pace myself because they were all sort of individual sort of showpieces, and it became a little bit, um oh, I'm start, starting to forget what's happening and which one. You know, that didn't of, happen here.
1: No, there's a lot of contrast here right. with different techniques and different tempos, contrast, you know, slow sort of legato parts, and then you're into some kind of frenzied triplet figures and things. So you never get lulled into sort of not paying attention or also thinking it sounded like what you just heard, because it doesn't. And everyone has its own real unique character, each one of the sonatas. So.
0: Yeah, yeah, really by the good. way, to, lis- to listeners who are interested in uh, these works, um, I would recommend the Alina Ibragimova recording of these two. It's it's different, but it's highly concentrated and also really fine. I, I didn't dig it out and listen to it again this week. I was kind of, as as we said at the beginning, pretty busy, but I think I might have to do that. But I'm so like, kind of like my, this is so in my ear now. I kind of almost don't want to do that. I kind of want to just live with this one for a while. I liked it a lot. All right, so that's our kind of Baroque-like recording. Although Issei was a late Romantic um, era composer, I guess you could say early modernist. Uh, He was uh, 1858 to 1931, so he really lived through the modernist era. Right. This this sounds kind of like um, Romantic writing, though.
1: Yeah, it's got just enough modern things to sort of add some spice, but the spirit is very Romantic, I think.
0: Yeah and the whole idea of bringing the baroque elements into a composition too is something that um a lot of modernists did uh, modernists of a certain ilk well yeah. there was um Stravinsky went through his whole like uh neo baroque period right. but um Bartok was doing this too in his um piano concertos and stuff he had these really kind of harsh uh, east european sounding rhythms but he had sort of like a baroque form to it all it was kind of like a combination of baroque and sort of um folk rhythms really interesting music We'll talk about that some other time when we finally get a Bartók recording. One of my favorite composers, by the way. All right. All right. So we're moving into the uh, modernist period. Okay. Now, this all started with um, Debussy's Prelude à l'après-midi d'un phone in 1895. Um the, it was already in the air before that as well, and lasted until about the uh beginning of the second world war, which uh ruined everything basically the first world war pretty much started the end of this whole amazing period but then the World War two of course finished it, and pretty much all of the european arts off and then we had the the miserable mid twentieth century <laughs> where where everything was uh dodecophonic music and abstract art and uh not not that I don't like that stuff, but it's just um I, don't know, it's, it, I just feel like there was really something special happening at the beginning of the century and it just all got washed away. Uh, speaking of which, now, part of the reason... Speaking of washing away... Yeah, we got the... Uh, I got to tell you what it is now because you just said that. Um, the uh, Zemlinsky's work die seeung frau which means the mermaid and, and it's about the little mermaid of hans christian Andersen's um right fairy tale and also franz schrecker a composer i really like by the way and there's just not enough by him uh recorded i remember having an old um recording of um on Decca records of uh the entarteta music series Entartete Musik series which was about um uh, music, uh, that was banned by the Nazis, and De- Decca had put out a whole series of these recordings, and, uh, during the, the, uh, 1980s or 1990s, and, uh, there were some pretty spectacular works in there that we really still need to be hearing. Some of them have gone back into the repertoire, like, uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold's opera Das Wunder der Heliane, which is, uh, being, uh, Performed these days as as a German opera from the period. Uh, by the way, uh, I just mentioned Zemlinsky, Schrecker, They were all um, both Viennese. Okay, so this is a work of Viennese modernism. Now we're also going to talk about uh, two Russian works: um, Prokofiev's Symphony Number no. Six and Mieskowski's Symphony Number no. Twenty Seven. We'll get to that in a moment. But the link, um, putting these together, is the uh, conductor Vasily Petrenko. Okay, he's um I've had my ear on him for the last few years. He did a series of um Stravinsky recordings with the uh, Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and also uh the complete Tchaikovsky symphonies with them. And they were all like just these rhythmically propulsive uh, performances. They sounded really lively and I really took to his um approach. And um, it's with a little bit of sadness that we find that uh, this Zemlinsky and Schrecker recording, recorded with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra, and uh, the Oslo Philharmonic recording, this is the, um, the Oslo Philharmonic performance the Prokofiev and Miaskovsky works, that Petrenko is stepping down from his post at both of these orchestras. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, because he's moving uh, to Russia. He's going to... Um... What is he going to do? I thought I had this... Uh... Yeah. He was chief conductor at the Liverpool uh the Philharmonic and uh, music director at the Oslo Philharmonic. He's gonna be uh he'll he'll still retain like some kind of um laureate post, I guess, at both orchestras, but um Maybe he missed the food. Yeah. He's gonna be the principal conductor of the State Academic Symphony Orchestra of the Russian Federation. Which sounds really it sounds important.
1: Very strict.
0: <laughs> well I don't you know, it's not the Soviet Union anymore, but uh that that's something else we'll be talking about in just a minute anyway these two recordings mark his final two recordings with each of these orchestras and oddly they're also both on different record labels um, the Zemlinsky and Shrekers on Onyx Records and um, the Prokofiev Van Mieskowski on I guess it's LAWO I really don't know what language that LAWO, is so I don't yeah. know how to, I mean maybe an acronym
1: it's all capitals could, could, yeah. it could
0: be Lavo or LAWO, LAWO I don't know I don't know I don't know. Yeah, I didn't look it up, uh, as usual. My non-professional self has not looked it up. <laughs> I was too busy listening to the music. Anyway, uh, the Zemlinsky and Schreker works, these are both virtually unknown. I have heard uh, Die See Jungfrau before, because it was one of the Entarteta Musik uh, releases back in the day, but this is like 30 years ago. I didn't remember this. Um, it's, it's a work that's... Um, okay, it basically tells... It doesn't tell the story, really. It kind of gives... Mo- the first uh, movement, it... Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Okay, the fr- there are three movements to this work. Uh, he originally, Zemlinski, um who was a big um, kind of orchestration and composition teacher in Vienna. He was also friends with uh, Gustav Mahler and really everybody around at the time. I believe he was also uh, one of... I don't know that Schoenberg was his student, because Schoenberg taught himself basically. But I don't, but they knew each other anyway, and Schoenberg was the younger of the of the pair. Um, this was originally a two movement work, but um, he uh, expanded it into three movements, and then um, kind of threw, threw it away. He kind of took it out of his catalog. I right. guess he didn't yeah, like I read it. Yeah, about that. Yeah, uh, so it just sort of got lost. It's very sweeping and cinematic,
1: uh kind of lots of pictures in it, yeah.
0: Yeah, also densely orchestrated. You know, oh yeah. This was a big thing at the time, but uh whereas Mahler has huge orchestras, there's a lot of space in Mahler's um kind of works, okay? There's this, you know, he like places sounds and things like that, but Zemlitsky's got, a, got this huge orchestra all playing oh, at yeah? the same time and all these sort of contrasting lines. It's kind it's of like hard you to had, hear some, you have through to some of the textures. all the colors
1: all yeah. the time and then with huge sounds too, so it's kind of like yeah. a, you know, all-you-can-hear buffet of orchestral sounds.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's like getting into a warm bath of sounds, basically. Yeah. It's kind of... You know, like, it's a, it's kind of like you've thrown all of your, uh, different kinds of bath salts or whatever into the bath and just kind of gotten in there. Um, he wrote this work, um, after he was heartbroken by, um, Alma Schindler, who had uh, broken up with him to, uh, go out with Mahler or to marry Gustav Mahler. Mm-hmm. Um, incidentally, uh, Alma Schindler was his composition pupil. So, uh, lots of, uh. Those Vien- Viennese got up to some uh, really risque, uh, got into some risque relationships. She later left Mahler for an architect, by the way, too. So she she wound up breaking both their hearts. Um, but anyway, they'll do that. Yeah, he. Uh, <laughs> the first movement of this is actually more or less a narrative. It kind of creates these sort of emotional sort of pictures, as opposed to say telling a story. Yeah, so I. Thought- he, he, uh, he, you could think of it as a series of paintings, maybe. The, the, in especially sound. on the first
1: movement, it had, mm-hmm. it sort of contrasts between mysterious and then very sweet um, yeah. melodies. And then in the middle, it gets quite dynamic. And then it sort of calms at the ending. So I sort of was reminded of sort of... Oce- ocean or sea related. Exactly. It's a very, there are a lot of, of watery things, effects yes.
0: throughout this entire yeah. work. Yeah, it, it begins with this kind of like, kind of bubbly sort of, um, kind of figuration. And then uh, you get the sweet melody. That kind of reminded me a little bit of, um, like in Scheherazade, when you first hear Scheherazade's voice, the violin, the sweet violin. You right. Know, she's kind of, and a violin is used uh, to um, depict, I guess, the mermaid's longing. I think I was for the human world, you know, imagining some erotic
1: mermaid images when
0: I was. Yeah, probably. To this, but... Erotic is probably a good word here because these Viennese were very erotically minded people. Uh, these kind of uh, odd erotic slash sexual situations come up in their music and art all the time. I just look at some Gustav Klimt paintings if yeah. you're and in fact you you can just look at the um cover of the C D. It's got this um uh sort of painting of a uh a woman, I guess she's a mermaid. Yeah, okay, it is it is in fact a little mermaid. Bare chested with her arms out, uh sort of um rising from the waves. Oh, just and, as I imagined her. Yeah. <laughs> and she 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 actually looks very Viennese too, so she's kind of uh she has a, a German a Teutonic look to her. Mm. All right. But uh yeah, the uh the dynamic part in the middle would be the storm that she um that uh kind of sinks the uh, prince's ship and all aboard die except the prince because he is um, saved by the little mermaid who then falls in love with her um, um, so I guess the prince is kind of there's a kind of a, sh- a swashbuckling theme in the middle there too right. which you'll pretty easily identify and that would be the prince I guess because he's like a man of action you know again I, this reminded me a little bit of uh, Rimsky-Korsakov actually Scheherazade because I think a lot of similar sort of um depictions kind of happen there like in the Sinbad he kind of comes across as sort of that way too
1: it's a lot of fun it's you know like I said cinematic cinematic kind of energy to it
0: yeah a lot of a lot of the music from this era did have that Um, interestingly enough uh, Eric Wolfgang Korngold wound up becoming like the first really big Hollywood uh, composer and he really created what you think of as that big-boned Hollywood sound. Uh, apparently, that was already going on in Vienna before there were movies, so... Uh, I don't know, I think he... You know, it, it wasn't... It, we didn't have it in America, but uh, he he brought it there. But it was already happening. All right, the second movement of this is uh, from an original version of the score. It, I don't think it was performed at the first performance. Um, it has an extra scene in it, really, is what it is, which concerns the Merwitch, which I couldn't really... Uh, I guess I could identify it, but I wasn't really sure, as I don't really know the original work um as it's norm the edited work as it's, as it's been performed this entire movement is sort of um takes place at a ball in the Mayor king's palace so it's a, sort of a party i'm guessing that at some point the uh mermaid tells the uh her her dad or the mayor the Mayor king um that uh she's in love with this human and she wants to be a human oh, that a lot could be getting it yeah.
1: has it starts with this big brass intro and then yeah. it's suddenly dark So that might be where the, you know, information was relayed and then the reaction. And then it rises again from that kind of darkness. Right.
0: I'm thinking the brass is the mer-king, like his power, because he's the king, you know, and he's probably this big brawny guy like Poseidon or something. Yeah. All right. There are a lot of nice jetting and burbling sounds uh, from the winds in this. I really like that effect, Um, just in all works, not just this one. Uh, Always reminding us that we are underwater. Um yeah, the drama develops, and there's a forlorn conclusion and a hopeful theme at about eleven minutes in uh lovely transitions too from mood to mood in this movement, I thought, and it ends with a swear swaying watery dance theme the mer- mermaid sounds happy at the end of this movement. The third movement takes place entirely on land um she's in the human world now, and it starts out rather timidly. you kind of get this idea that she 's kind of not. Really sure that she's made the right decision or doesn't you know she's in this new place and doesn't know how to uh to uh proceed uh she she seems to be the violin solo that's usually the um right you know the the timid character's voice here he, you know, um i imagine that uh, the the prince winds up um marrying a, another human so he sort of um leaves her of the
1: scales yeah
0: I guess that's what it was. Well, apparently she got legs and uh, she couldn't really walk on them according to the Hans Christian Andersen story. Right. So they caused her a lot of pain, like walking on like glass. It's it's a, kind of horrible images that Andersen gives us. They're pretty <laughs> nightmarish. Please, this is not the uh, Disney version of this uh, no. story. This is the Hans Christian Andersen version all the way. Uh, her betrayal, I imagine, happens at about the six minute mark um, because there's, some, there's a dramatic uh, musical event there. And at the end of the story she goes back to the sea and turns into the foam of the sea as she dissolves into the water. Uh but the piece ends majestically. Uh it's a good work. I'd, uh, thinking about it now, I, I wrote down all of these um notes, which I'm reading from now, simply because I wasn't gonna remember them. It, it's 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 the narrative kind of stands out. So well not really a narrative, but the kind of the mood kind of stands out but the melodies aren't really terribly memorable and I think it's because you have to kind of listen through so much uh, detail in the orchestra now if you're into orchestra detail this is a, this is the work for you it's got a lot of that it uh, repays a lot of re-listening because there really is a lot going on
1: yeah it's definitely right. for when you're in the mood for lots of you know different colors and the contrasts and you just want to kind of soak up that orchestral sound this is a really good piece for that
0: yeah soak up is good it's it's got this watery kind of theme yeah. to it and it really does sound like a big sound bath <laughs> okay, yeah. so give that a listen all right the next work is more modest by Franz Schrecker it's a um, it's a, it's it's a lot less dense and it's actually more appealing too Schrecker i feel like had a better sense of uh, melody than Zemlinsky did they're pretty immediately appealing and also uh, this is a um dance pantomime
1: Right. That um, was interesting when I saw that. Yeah. I was trying to imagine that I didn't actually look up any performance if there is one, but it was hard to imagine pantomime with some of these pieces, but...
0: Yeah. Well, I, mean, I guess it depends on what you do. Now, the interesting thing about this is it was written for um, these two sisters who, um, who, who commissioned the work. They commissioned the work from him, and uh, they had done all these sort of dances to other works, and they wanted their own... Um, were composed for them uh so he did that um the first performance was a huge success and he and the two sisters um greta wiesenthal and uh her sister elsa okay did, did the original performance in 1908 and it was a huge success they became famous he became famous. Now you might think Franz Schrecker, never heard of him, but if you were in Vienna in this period, you definitely would have heard of him. He was more famous than uh Mahler at the time. Mahler's kind of fame came really more after his death. Mahler was really better known as the uh, um conductor of the uh Vienna Opera. You know, during his life, his his uh, compositions really became famous later, really after the war, after all the horrors of war, his his um his rather um this kind of pastiche-like sort of um, huge movements he put together became more kind of understandable and appealing. It's, like, it's almost like he saw the future coming. Uh, anyway, French Wrecker. Let's talk about him. Um, this work also is based on a... Um, Oscar Wilde. Yeah, Oscar Wilde, uh, the birthday of the Infanta. And Infanta is a Spanish princess. Um, and um, the opening of the work all in kind of narrates just the uh, beginning of her party it gives the dancers a, a chance to just kind of you know show off these sort of traditional dances it um it starts with um let's see let me just kind of look at the uh the the um, track the track listing here and okay, I, I 12, just, 12 separate yeah. Movement. Yeah it yeah. starts out with the, the infanta dancing at her party it's kind of like a young girl's uh, party there's a um, procession the 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 noble boys greet her there's another movement that's like a mock bullfight um then uh, she gets a solo dance then there's a puppet show so the puppets get to dance and i guess that means that the dancers would have um sort of behave like puppets a really rather popular thing to do you know these string um you know being moved by strings and stuff like that and then um these um I, I like this this movement minuet of the dancing boys of the church of nuestra senora del pilas it's like a, <laughs> it gives an exact place for this yes. in a foreign country really kind of interesting and then interestingly enough this this is quite a lot of music has already passed and then like the story sort of comes in it's it's just a lot of set pieces that are dances you know that kind of um show her at her party then uh these men bring a Dwarf in, and the uh, dwarf had lived in the woods. You know, this this is like a, a fairy tale type dwarf, I guess. He lives in the woods, kind of like you know, if you think of the uh Disney Snow White movie, you know how they all, they all live in the woods and they <laughs> work in a work in a mine, or, or the Lord of the Rings dwarfs, you know they they're in the mountains and things like that. So he's more of a he's more of a curiosity. He's not someone just living in the city somewhere. Um, Okay. So he's, he's, you know, anyway, he's, uh, very ugly, apparently, but, uh, he's, he himself is not aware of this, having never seen a mirror before because he lives in the woods. I guess he never looked in the uh, lake either. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that happens, but, uh, he does three dances and wins the princess over. Uh, she gives him a rose and he falls in love with her. She goes away. He, he dances this happy dance and then sees himself in a mirror. And realizes how ugly he is, and you actually can spot that moment in the music, too. There are these harsh-sounding, uh, um, I guess, brass or or uh, reeds. I don't, ah, did I write this down? I don't remember. Okay. But, uh, yeah, nice orchestration here. Um, uh, there are harsh chords in the reeds, I said, later in the brass, too. And Anyway, the dwarf then dies of a broken heart. The um, princess and her friends come back. And uh she's told that the um dwarf has died and she's all upset and says in true Oscar Wilde style, um, she doesn't want anybody with a heart to ever come to her parties again. <laughs> yeah. Wilde has a way of just twisting kind of the 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 emotion around so that there really is none. That's just this hard hearted sort of um ending. Anyway, this was a really enjoyable work. Um, I, all these little set pieces, um, all immediately appealing. Um, this The dwarfs' dances are all kind of like... They start kind of grotesquely, but then kind of go into this sort of whirling grace as you hear that he's actually a good dancer. Um, and then high late romanticism and the lush springs for the rose presentation. Yeah, those uh, masked strings that those late romantics used to do. Boy, they really are... Um, uh they they really go through you it's a, it's a really kind of amazing very warm sound anyway i really enjoyed this piece a lot
1: i like it there's lots of contrast here you've got you know 12 separate movements so they're rather short and the mood changes a lot the parts are all very exciting but within them you've got a lot of sweet melodies and as you mentioned i think schrecker is sort of maybe more of a Melodic, kind of composer than Zemlinsky, so his melodies come kind of with ease, and they're a little bit more memorable. And then the overall sort of theme or feeling from these is rather playful, so yeah. it's kind of a fun journey through the little different uh, parts of it. So yeah, I liked it, and yet he still, you know, he has he shares with uh, Zemlinsky the sort of use of tones of the orchestra and you get a lot of different sounds and colors and so it's a kind of full on listening experience too in this piece. And yeah.
0: Very yeah. It's a, I want to mention that uh these particular performances by uh the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Vasily Petrenko are probably never gonna be or not in our lives will be uh, you know, kind of surpassed simply because he he really Draws, I think, as much as possible out of these works. And I doubt they're going to be recorded all that often. Yeah. So, uh, And it's a nice recording, well too. The sound yeah. quality
1: is, is clear and rich. Yeah, No complaints there.
0: I like this conductor a lot. You should go, go through his back catalog as well. Listen to the Tchaikovsky that he recorded and the Stravinsky there. Really great. Really kind of unique. We have another recording. The, his final recording as the uh, Oslo Philharmonic's um, chief conductor is that right chief conductor i said right no music director sorry he was music the music director. director of the um oslo philharmonic now this is a recording of prokofiev's sixth symphony and miyaskowski another soviet era composer uh, his 27th and final symphony he wrote 27 symphonies now petrenko and the oslo philharmonic last year had released a, a spectacular recording of prokofiev's fifth symphony along with Mieskowski's 21st symphony. That's a really fantastic recording that everybody should hear. This one is great, too, but these works aren't as immediately appealing as those are, although the Mieskowski I thought was really good. I really like Mieskowski's music a lot, and um, I kind of said to myself today, I was like, you know, I really kind of wish, I really would like to hear all of the Mieskowski symphonies. There are 27 of them, and uh, it just turns out that there's an old... um, I I don't know if it's from the Soviet era but there's an a box set of all 27 uh symphonies coming out on the Alto label conducted by um Evgeny Svetlanov this is it's an older recording um from the by the Russian Federation Academic Symphony Orchestra starts after the um it's after the Soviet era I would guess but if you want to hear all 25 uh, Myoskovsky symphonies, there you go. You can go for that one. I do not own or have not heard that recording. <laughs> and I don't know. I don't think I'm going to get it. But uh, it would be kind of nice to hear. All right. all right. Anyway, this one is a little bit more, again, fantastic fantastic performances. But this one is a little bit more of a um, a, a little harder one. The Prokofiev work is a bit more, um, I guess, intrans- intransigent. I, should, I want to make sure that I'm using that word correctly. Let me just check this out. I'm losing my vocabulary. Unwilling or refusing to change one's views. Um, yeah, I guess so. Uh, he was in the uh, Soviet Union by this time. In 1936, Prokofiev left Europe for the Soviet Union, going back thinking he'd get a hero's welcome there. And well, he didn't. Um, <laughs> but he did co- continue his career as a composer, writing for the symphony and for films. And his music was often, um, banned. This particular work, um, was um well-received when it was first performed, and the year later it was banned by Stalin because <laughs> it was its... um. I know this uh, one fairly well. I yeah. have
1: a recording of it. Uh, I guess it's... Let me see. I wrote it down. It's from 1996, the Leonard Slatkin uh, oh, wow. recording of it. And uh, I like that one, too. This one, curiously uh, comparing the two, Petrinko's version... Takes quite a bit slower tempos on them, but I like yeah. it. I, I guess it's maybe in his style. He never sounds rushed. Yeah, through any of the uh, pieces that he conducts, and so yeah. I.
0: But do again, like the this rhythms one. are always taut. That's kind of important yes. to understand. So even though it's slow, it's not like they're the rhythm is yeah. slacking. And this is really important for Prokofiev and for modernist composers in general. Um, they're writing a lot more. Uh, with with sort of changing rhythms and more of like an industrial era rhythm than the natural world that say people like Beethoven and Mozart lived in. Yeah. So they kind of mm.
1: For me Prokofiev I guess it's just, you know, everyone has sort of the spectrum in their listening between what's completely comfortable and then what is sort of intolerable as, as far as expectation, familiarity, and newness. Mm -hmm. Prokofiev always, for me, strikes just the sweet spot on the balance towards things that I'm not expecting. Right. Both in his orchestra works and then his piano compositions too. And so for me, that's like the right balance of sort of satisfying romantic elements Mm -hmm. that he uses, and then the sort of adventurous... The more modernist modernist 20th century things. There's just the right balance to sometimes make me a little bit, you know, questioning what I'm hearing. And then he rewards me with some, you know, richness from a romantic sort of throwback in a phrase or a, a sort of voicings in the strings. And so I like I feel like I'm teetering on that tolerable intolerable point a lot of the times but it's never too much and so I always get drawn in deeper and I feel that with this uh, Sixth Symphony by him and so this is a performance I also thought now I could remember most of the movements from listening to the Slatkin recording yeah. and uh,
0: yeah I really like it yeah it's a symphony of contrast. it's really the warmer romantic uh themes versus the uh more nasal kind of ugly sounding uh muted brass especially that right. you hear at the opening. It's kind of nasty sounding and uh I'm sure that's what turned the uh Soviet officials off when they uh, kind of decided you know we don't like this work <laughs> <laughs> it's it's all you need you know i'm i am all for the f- freedom and the artist the artist is free to create what he wants you know and uh, you don't want government involved in that unless they're giving you money and just going away right. <laughs> you know? I, I feel like th- these things have to because they're, they're sort of a mirror of society um, when the when the artist is completely free he sort of creates this uh, really uh, highly reflective mirror of the world you're living in and you can kind of figure it out from the art around you uh when it's being shaped by the government they're trying to they're they're basically lying to you they're you know, they're, you're not really um you're getting As the world they want and not the, <laughs> the actual world you know um uh, th- th- we're going to talk about more uh um examples of that in coming um weeks um but um anyway th- yeah th- so this particular work yeah the elements square off and then it, it kind of ends. Um, you know the way it ends. Now I want to get to the Miaskowski here because um, he's a lot more conservative than Prokofiev and very, very appealing. I would say. Yeah, yeah, he's um, so much
1: more traditional. Uh, yeah, you know, more romantic sounding, Re- sonata movement and, things like and, that. It, yeah, very, and also it's a very restrained. The performance is, fr- you know, very well balanced, but the composition is also. This is a very quiet symphony for most of the duration. I mean, there are yeah. parts of intensity. But it really focuses on you know subtleties I felt especially in the second movement
0: all right Miaskovsky um had a lot more trouble with the Soviet authorities than um Prokofiev did um and he he pretty much lived with them for his entire uh entire life his entire compositional life you know not when he was younger though I think he studied with um Rimsky-Korsakov, I think it's said here. And you can sort of hear that. There's a lot of really great uh, orchestration in this work. Now, it's more conservative. And um, the the writer of this booklet in the the CD mentions that, well, we don't know how much of that is him being careful about the Soviet authorities and how much is him. I don't agree. I think he's sort of conservative by nature. And uh this sounds like an honest work. It doesn't sound like uh he's trying to um, you know, hide something or anything like that. It, it really does sound kinda natural to me, at least in this performance. Um yeah, I, I didn't get a sense of like that there's all this kind of like hidden stuff like you get in Shostakovich no, it where it's all sort of ironic. At all. Yeah, it doesn't sound contrived at all. This a little yeah you know, I think uh critics like to uh think that, oh, all the Soviet the great Soviet composers they were thumbing their noses secretly at the uh at the um you know the uh the elites. But um I don't think that's really the case. Um in some in some cases they were, but in some cases they were patriotic people. They wanted to um you know serve the country. and th- that's just what it was, I guess, to them at the time. Um anyway. You know, the motherland, as they would say. Um, gee, I wrote all these notes about how this work goes. I don't really want to go through them all, though. I just like um, how it
1: starts with bassoon yeah. and bass clarinet. I mean, <laughs> if yeah. you can start something with that, then, you know, it's going to be unique and interesting. And uh, there's lots of right. great woodwind spots in here English horn and. It's a lot and of and nice then, brass, too. It's like very nice Wagnerian brass. brass at the beginning of the second yeah. movement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So apparently he knew a bit about Wagner. Um, the third movement is uh, starts tensely. It's got this urging, rushing figuration. It's really nice, and then it goes into a march. And this is the thing: like the the booklet says, "Oh, yeah. maybe this was a, a kind of a ironic march." I was like it's not. It's a, it's a march. It's it sounds pretty yeah. honest to me. I think that would. Um, I think marches for for the these people were kind of like a sort of um salute to the people it was like i guess music of the people or something like that i don't i don't think you know we we like to think that everybody hated the soviets but i don't think that was true if you lived in the country maybe maybe you did maybe they were terrifying but uh i think uh still they wanted to still serve the people around them so it's kind of it's a really complicated matter uh this is a really nice work though it's conservative but it's really good um very pleasant it's got a little bit of drama in it but nothing really that's gonna their you know your your emotions to like this really high level i like this composer a lot i would encourage people to seek out especially the uh symphonies that are in the 20s i also you know like symphony number no. 20 on uh, i should mention this is his last symphony um he died before it was uh first uh, performed and it was first performed three years after his death and was very well received um anyway, another really good performance by Vasily Petrenko conducting the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra in this case and a nice send-off. One wonders if he'll record more of the Prokofiev uh, Prokofiev Miyaskowski, you know, or uh, symphonies nice combination, with them. yeah. And I, yeah. I have to
1: say that uh this is what label here? This is la La-wo, Lawo. Whatever yeah. that is. But the yeah. recording quality is really incredible here. The sound is really full it's yeah. a, it's a a really you know thick presentation in the strings especially uh in a good way you get you know a real depth to it when you're listening to this recording that you don't get on a lot of other recordings you really f- you mm-hmm. know feel the full thickness of the strings and everything else sounds full even that thickness the especially because there's a lot of solo woodwind Mm. parts here, and they all come through really clear. So this sounds really great on a nice sound system. Uh, you'll really get drawn into the music.
0: Yeah. Also, absolutely hear his um, Prokofiev Symphony 5 and Miaskowski Symphony 21 recording released last year. Another really spectacular release. All right. Now, we're we're staying in Vienna, well, this is Russia, but um, okay. With uh, Schoenberg, a name that strikes terror in the hearts of listeners, these people say, "Oh my God, I don't like mo- modern music." But uh, th- these works were written over a hundred years ago. They're not well; they're modernist, but they're not modern anymore. Okay, so we should have been we should be used to them by then. All right, this is another recording by uh, that features. Um, it's a project of um, Patricia Kopaczynskaia, who I really like. She's a violinist. Um, from Moldova, I think. I I hope I said that right. I'm, I hope I'm not. Okay. Moldova, sorry. Moldova. And uh, this is a recording of um, Schoenberg's... The main piece on this recording is Schoenberg's Piero Lunaire. Okay. A work for uh, Sprechstimme, which is kind of... It's kind of like a sing-speaking, which is actually what Sprechstimme means. Um, it's, what does that mean? Speak voice or something like that. But it's like a, a kind of keening kind of sound it's it's kind of i think i think if you've never heard it before you'll find it annoying but it's gloriously so in this piece but not necessarily in this performance let me get to that um so kopach is a great violinist but here she's doing the sprechgesang the the sing the, the speak singing for this and um i'm looking at the booklet and she's in full um on the cover you can see her in full um pierrot garb pierrot was the um The the, um, Commedia dell'Arte characters that um, entertained uh, most of Europe for the previous 200 years, they would kind of go from town to town and people would dress as these characters and put on these rather violent uh, comedy shows um, where where all these horrible things would happen (laughs) to the characters. And that happens here too. Now, Piero Lunaire means uh, Moonstruck Pierrot, and these are uh, a series of uh, French poems that were translated into German for this... um, Uh, composition so we're not hearing the original french poems here but they kept the french title go figure um they're they're pretty violent poems too and but it's it's kind of funny that they're in french their original poems are in french because these um seem to serve the german expressionist style think of movies like nosferatu or the cabinet of dr (laughs) caligari you know some silent horror classics from the 1920s all those weird angular sets and things like that um you know it, it kind of has that kind of feeling this is a pretty nightmarish piece um but it's got these wonderful sort of um you know silvery figurations from the piano to indicate the moonlight and things like that um the ensemble that she's playing with here I should mention them Misun Hong on the vi- violin and viola uh Julia Gallego on the flute Reto Bieri clarinet Marco Milenkovic on the V... Vi- no he's not on this on this particular work uh Thomas Kaufmann on the cello and Jonas Ahonen on the piano uh, are the ensemble here and I have to say they sound great together this is a good recording Um, and it's also the pieces are taken at a slower pace than usual so all of the uh, light orchestration is all the instruments are easily heard and I really enjoyed that part of this um performance now the part i didn't like so much is, is the main part uh sadly by uh, patricia kapachinskaya she's she does the voice and she kind of this particular um character that she's uh singing i like it best when the person sounds like a demented child because the the whole the, the the music and the the singing it all kind of sounds like this kind of like this it has this kind of like broken glass quality that light is like reflecting off, but it feels sharp and dangerous as well. So if you're one of these people who likes like punk rock or something that's kind of subversive, this would be a great work for you to hear. I think you should uh, uh, give it a listen because um, yeah, it really it, yeah, it it still offends people to this day. Now, the problem with uh, Kopachinskaya's um, performance is that she doesn't really have... Vocal presence. She has enormous violin presence when she plays the violin, um, but she kind of you know fades into the background. She doesn't like it. it does the, the vocal, the voice doesn't assert itself. Now, if you want to know what I mean by that, go back and listen to the uh, the Sonatas that we talked about earlier in this um, program. Um, James Ennis. I didn't mention this then, but he has enormous presence. The moment he moves the bow across the string you're listening you know you're just kind of galvanizing and that's on a recording you can imagine hearing him live um there's, there's something really kind of palpable to people who can do this um but she doesn't really have that kind of presence to really pull this off she kind of comes across as angry bratty and spiteful so the, the child element is there but it's just it doesn't sound like wicked and menacing or kind of like uh it doesn't sound dangerous to me it just kind of sounds like Somebody throwing a tantrum, sort of. That kind this, of made me sad.
1: This was torturous mm. for me. Um, <laughs> I I wrote the the spoken voices like the whining of an insufferable harpy. That was
0: yeah, that kind of yeah. But uh, I got to say though, a really good performance of this. It really kind of it, it has like a really nice effect. I, I it's it's nightmarish. I kind of enjoy that. Maybe yeah. Uh, it's just because
1: her, her inflection and over the top delivery of it was just insufferable for me well
0: i think all all performances of this are over the top but i think she suffers because again she's not a vocalist and she doesn't have uh, all the colors There are 21 very short works in this it really takes about 40 minutes to, to get through i didn't really time it here but um it'll seem longer but you need like vocal colors you know sort of to uh keep the listener's interest you know, sort of like we heard in the Yenis recording, there all he has all sorts of um, tricks up his sleeve. Okay, but she just kind of goes through this. Uh, the um, you know, as as the old monkey song goes, uh, "Listen to the band." Right? They they sound really great in this. I really enjoyed listening to them. The music uh, they play part, exceptionally yeah. well together.
1: Yeah, it's uh, fine. Even you know, I have to be in the right mood to sort yeah. of digest Schoenberg. But the the music, even when it's you know, sort of out there, atonally. The playing yeah. is sharp and uh, pretty good, but that yeah. voice, ooh,
0: yeah, she wasn't. It's it's kind of sad because I like this violinist a lot, and this is the second uh, performance that we're uh, hearing of her this year, and <laughs> I didn't like either one of them. So yeah. I'm kind of well,
1: th- this program is strange to me because th- it's also sandwiched, you know, with this the the Chrysler, yeah, piece which I actually liked a lot, and then the Schoenberg Six Little Piano pieces, which you have to really, you have to turn things up and get really close to listen to these because they're, you know, rather, rather kind of subtle, uh, in a lot yeah. of ways. And I, I thought it's kind of an odd combination, although I, I kind of had fun with the other works, uh, too. Right.
0: Um, well, the odd thing about this is, um, about the, the interesting thing about this whole, um, you know, program is that after Pierrot Lunaire, we hear um, uh, Johann Strauss uh, waltz, which uh, Schoenberg arranged. He was a oh, big fan. Oh yeah, that too. I of forgot of about that. Music. That really
1: maybe cleanses the palate or something.
0: Well, yeah, it cleanses the palate. But another thing it does is kind of kind of set the uh, tone for the Schoenberg Fantasy for Violin and Piano, which is a more. Um, uh, let me see. Yeah, this, this is a, this is, I don't know that it's a 12th, dodecaphonic work, but it's certainly atonal. Um, but hearing that, uh, the uh, Fantasy for Violin and Piano by Schoenberg, after this um, Johann Strauss very to- highly tonal waltz, is interesting because basically the Schoenberg work sounds like a broken version of... Uh, the Vien- the Viennese waltz that uh, Strauss uh, composed it's almost like it still sounds Viennese that was the interesting yeah. thing about the contrast like you didn't feel like you had gone from one world to another it's it's sort of like you're <laughs> You're at a wedding and then like you fast forward to like the you know, after the divorce when everybody's like an alcoholic or something. Like that. <laughs> that's kind of the the idea I got from this. But I was really fascinated by that contrast. And I think that's what the um, program is after. Um, after the Schoenberg fantasy, we get the four pieces for violin and piano by Anton Webern, one of Schoenberg's pupils. Now, I love Webern's music. They're all dodecaphonic, 12-tone music, but they're all... Fairly short. I think his longest work ever is 10 minutes long. These are, this is four very short uh, movements for violin and piano. And Pierre Boulez once described them as being like haiku, like the themes, they're kind of expressive and they just kind of pass by you know and you kind of kind of catch them as they go sort of feeling and that kind of, and they're, they they feel kind of light to me and i really rather like that quality of them even though they're not tonal at all um they're very appealing if you're listening for the right thing and i liked hearing that then we get a fritz kreisler a little viennese march this is a pretty straightforward work followed by the arnold arnold Schoenberg, very famous six little piano pieces opus 19 these were published in a magazine uh, before they were ever performed and they really uh, announced his new style. People studied these like crazy. Now the soloist here is uh, the pianist Yunus Ahonen and again, kind of like uh, this, This I feel like this um, album ends like it begins. Um, Kopachinskaya doesn't have, Kopachinskaya doesn't have much uh, presence as a uh, vocalist, as I said, and I feel like um, Ahonen doesn't have a lot of presence as a, as a pianist. I feel like he's more of an accompanist, really. Um, but these didn't really kind of come across as well as, like, some other uh, performances I've heard in the past. And I haven't heard all that many, so it was a long time ago. But I kind of felt like these were... I mean, they were good. They were pretty quiet. Um, but they didn't, like, jump out. You know, they, they, I didn't really feel like, whoa, this is something amazing happening uh, from these. So, I, you know, it was, it, they're good performances, not a, no worries, but again, uh, a lot of this program is lacking in presence, but I do like the idea of the program, I like that the Viennese kind of, you know, the, the, you know, the kind of brokenness of the Viennese, uh, form from earlier. I really liked that idea. Okay, so I'm not going to really, I, I don't know, you might want to hear this, but I didn't like her, um, Piro very well, very much. Go for yeah. an earlier one. That I think Christian Christian Ilza sang this. I, I think it was her but I, I gotta look it up. But she was pretty great doing this German soprano. Okay. That's all I got this week. It's right. it's modernism. 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 Well then moving yeah. on to okay. jazz. We've got While uh, modernism was happening so was jazz. As so it turns was jazz. Out. And yeah.
1: this week we've got two sort of tribute albums although in different ways and maybe one is more of a reimagination of something but the first one is definitely a tribute and this is called more sounds of a dry martini
0: (laughs) What a great title that's one of the titles of the year on the I'm sorry. O- oh, but before you go on, uh, the Schoenberg, Piero Lunaire, Chris- Christine Schaefer, I, get, I made a mistake, not Christian Els. Okay, Christine Schaefer did a great recording with Boulez. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay.
1: And you might need a double martini after the Schoenberg, but that's all right.
0: Yeah. Uh, actually. <clears throat> I, th- I think I drank a whole bottle of uh, gin after that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> This is on the origin label by uh, the saxophonist Brent Jensen, yeah, uh, who's from Boise and studied in New York with the great jazz saxophonist Lee Konitz. And I think that's where he gets a lot of his uh, sound tonal quality from. And he's made a name for himself uh, since the 90s, and he's played with a lot of uh, famous people. One of my favorites, uh, Bobby Shue, uh also John Clayton, Joe LaBarbara, uh, Warren Vache, Bill Watros, Diane Schur. Uh, really a player who's played around a lot, and he's also had nine of his own recordings that have gotten a lot of airplay on jazz stations and uh, noticed in the jazz magazines. But here uh, is his second tribute to the sound of the dry martini, and maybe jazz fans know that that's referring to the great Paul Desmond, I actually didn't know that. Oh, yeah. That's how he described Hmm. his own sound, you know, which was such a unique sound. I guess you would call it the cool jazz sound. And uh, he, of course, was the saxophonist in the Dave Brubeck Quartet. And then he went on to have his own solo recording career, working a lot with uh, Jim Hall on guitar and later guitarist Ed Bickert, the Canadian guitarist. And, well, about 20, is it 20 years ago? I guess, well, yeah, exactly 2001. He recorded the first volume of this, which was called The Sound of a Dry Martini, Remembering Paul Desmond. And Mm. this got a lot of attention, and radio stations were playing it, and uh, it's been streamed uh, a lot uh, since then, because Paul Desmond really had that unique kind of dry tone sound. In in the alto world, he wasn't really influenced so much by Charlie Parker. Maybe he had more of a Lester Young quality. And uh, not only his dry martini sound, but his unique phrasing and sort of relaxed nature of playing really gave him sort of a unique quality that also worked really well on uh, bossa nova type recordings, which he did a lot of after the Uh, Dave Brubeck Quartet recordings. And so here we get his uh, comeback 20 years later for Jensen paying more tribute to the Paul Desmond sound. And he doesn't, you know, try, um, I don't know if he tried, he doesn't sound exactly like Paul Desmond. I don't think anyone could do that as far as his tone. Maybe it's kind of a mix of Lee Konitz and Paul Desmond, but he does really capture... Desmond's approach and his phrasings uh, to this material, and he plays a lot of things. Well, everything here is something that Desmond has done before, and you know I really love the sound of Paul Desmond's saxophone. It's really unique, and those recordings are really great. So this was uh, you know a pleasure to listen to. Here uh, we've got on this recording Brent Jensen on alto saxophone, and I understand he's he had made a switch to soprano for a while in the 2000s, so this was sort of like a return to alto for a while. We've got Jamie Findlay on guitar, Bill Anschau on piano, Chris Snyder on bass, and most of the album is uh, Stefan Schatz on drums, but on tracks three and nine is John Bishop. And so it starts out with the Desmond original called Take 10, which was sort of the new version of Take Five from um, that's, that's the old what I <laughs> Dave Rubek uh, Take Five recording, which was a Desmond original, and mm-hmm. you'll hear right away on this one, it's you know it sounds pretty much like the Take Ten, which was the album that uh, Desmond had recorded too, and you'll hear that Jensen doesn't sound exactly like Paul Desmond, but he gets a lovely sound that's really close to the style uh, as Desmond did. You know he explores some nice modes over this melody. That's you know in ten or you could break it up into five. And uh, there's some funky guitar playing here too. And he has some nice outside harmonies in the solo. And then in the guitar, he explores these harmonies too. And he he mixes uh, solo lines and strumming really well in his guitar style, which you hear throughout the album. And then you know, keeping pretty much to what the original did. There's a nice drum solo over the bass groove and it returns to the melody. So we open up, you know, with a Desmond original there. Uh, Number two is Desmond Blue, also a Paul Desmond original uh, from his album Desmond Blue. And it's got a nice bass opening solo. This is a kind of slow swing on a minor blues. And he, again, captures the Desmond spirit here well. So very sweet, reserved phrases over relaxed guitar chords and a nice bluesy guitar solo also mixing in the chords in a tasty way. And at the end, the sax and then the band and drums trade fours. Uh, The third track is uh, standard Look for the Silver Lining, which Paul Desmond had recorded with uh, Dave Brubeck Quartet on Stardust. And Also, it's on the Paul Desmond Quintet Quartet album. The guitar sits out on this one. So you've just got sax, drums, and bass. You get a little more lively treatment compared to the earlier tracks on uh, this standard at a faster tempo. It's very nice phrasing uh, here by Jensen uh, on this one uh, without any guitar or piano. Uh, Then track four, We've got uh, these foolish things. Uh, another a standard. Of you. Yeah, and this comes from uh, Desmond Brubeck uh, recording, not the Dave Brubeck quartet, but they recorded in different uh, formats, sometimes just the two of them together. And so this is just piano and sax. Yeah, and, this uh, really stood out
0: for yeah. that reason. I thought it was really beautiful. I like Nice swinging. The yeah.
1: triplet figures in the sax and piano had a really fun contrast. And, uh, this, uh, who is this? This is um, Bill Anshaw on piano. He does kind of a nice Brubeckian uh, piano solo uh, with those kind of block chords that Brubeck would use, uh, but in a subtle way. So it's a really nice track here. Uh, Then we've got uh, number five, Alone Together, which is on uh, Desmond's Take 10 album. This is back to the guitar quartet format. More of a, big mysterious opening here than the original Desmond version. Uh, They sort of play up the opening before heading into the swinging melody. And then, interestingly, the guitar sits out on Jensen's first solo chorus, but then comes back in, and we get a nice slinky guitar solo, and nice drumming accents behind that, so this is an attractive track too. Uh, Number six, the track probably everyone would know if they've heard Dave Brubeck, The Three to Get Ready. Uh, This is Mm. played almost just like the uh, Dave Brubeck original on take five. So the piano's back here. And, you know, this song is a really attractive composition. You've got two bars of three, four, and then two bars of four, four. Uh, So it's an interesting effect. And uh, it's very much like the original, the ending, too. So this is in kind of full tribute mode here. Then we get the very attractive uh, Bossa Nova, Bossa Antigua, which is on the album of the same title by Paul Desmond, back to the guitar quartet on this original. I think he switches, sounds like he switches to nylon guitar here for the kind of Bossa sound, uh, which is cool, but it's a bit buzzy. Uh, (laughs) I was starting to get annoyed by those guitar Uh, Kind of buzz sounds, even though his playing is nice. But uh, the sax solo is very Desmond like in the phrasing and very sweet. Uh, Then a bit of surprise uh, on number eight, Autumn Leaves, uh, which was on Desmond Blue. Uh, This is also in the guitar quartet. Uh, However, the uh, bass and sax uh, intro uh, comes right in with improvisation and they just Dispense with the melody because <laughs> I guess everyone's <laughs> heard this song a million times, so you'll right. recognize the harmony, but the autumn leaves melody is never played. <laughs> you know, right. they just uh, kind of hint at it. I,
0: I was, in fact, looking for it, I was like, Oh, maybe I'm missing it or something's yeah. buried in there somewhere, but no,
1: I don't know. Uh, so I thought that was kind of yeah. a nice, uh, fake out there, and uh, then it's, it's something interesting on this one, too. I noticed when the guitar solo comes in, you hear. The sax playing faint accompaniment lines behind the guitar solo, it's almost inaudible, but it's there only for the first part of the solo, so I'm not sure what was going on. Uh, they get a nice woody bass solo. When they return to the head of the original melody, they actually play the melody on the second part of the verse, just to close it out. Uh, so it's kind of a you know, trick fade version of Autumn Leaves, but done very well. And then on uh, track nine is uh standard Just Squeeze Me, which uh, Paul Desmond recorded on his Radio Quartet live album. And this is with the guitar format, a very relaxed tempo on this standard, and another nice smooth guitar solo, mixing uh, chords in with the single lines, uh, a bass solo and a sax melody uh, at the end. And uh, so... This is a very enjoyable, listenable album. If you're a fan of Dave Brubeck and the Paul Desmond sound, he captures that spirit really well and uh, sort of goes through an assortment of Desmond's later recordings as well as some Dave Brubeck things. Is this a tribute? Is it a homage? Uh, I don't know but it's just great and you should have a double martini with this one because it's just a sweet sounding recording and you know we don't hear sax played like this so much anymore yeah. and uh, Desmond was sure a unique figure and, and no no one in the modern times really tries to copy that sound so uh i think Jensen does it he he gets the essence of Desmond without you know, copy him too much, and uh, the result is just really enjoyable. So, uh,
0: fun recording. Yeah, all enjoyable uh, music. I was wondering about the recording though. You said that the uh, the recording quality. This really sounded like it had this kind of like sixties sort of like sort of room space to it to me. A bit, and, yeah. Um, I thought it was um okay. Having been a former uh, recording engineer, I thought it was recorded very close because I, yeah, I, yeah. I I th- I thought that the. Uh, it's in digital apparently so you're not going to get like distortion but I was kind of like feeling like it was a little too close I kind of wish that the uh, engineer had kind of backed off a little bit or the, the musicians especially on the uh, the the, uh, the saxophone and the guitar because the tar- I felt like the guitar was distorting but that might have been his effect I'm not really sure
1: that could account for why the you know the buzzing was kind of prominent in there too yeah. I'm not sure yeah. origin, label I, I don't know yeah you're right everything is uh, is really up Again. front on this though
0: I listened to this on Deezer. I didn't have like a, a CD of this, so I don't know. Maybe the uh, y- you know you know, you don't really know what you're hearing half the time on these things. Although Deezer does have high sound quality, so yeah, I really don't know. Yeah, it's not bad. I, in I was any wondering way. about the recording a, quality. It's quite upfront,
1: yeah. but uh, you know, yeah. it, generally it's a mellow mellow kind of feel.
0: Um, yeah, I did enjoy the album a lot, yeah, though. It was really kind of like uh, really, it, it just felt really good. It really did feel like something out of a uh, I kept thinking 1960s, you know, this kind of... Yeah, it's
1: exactly. Well, that's, you know, I, I don't know what year the Dave Brubeck Quartet broke up. Was it 64 or something? And then...
0: Yeah. and But there, there, there's a shag rug and a lava lamp involved. Yeah, and I think, and then, You know, it's kind of, you know, yeah, Desmond in the was listening interesting, of this album.
1: Desmond was a very interesting character. Uh, and mm. uh, he... Uh, I think he he ended up dying from lung cancer and to which he made some remark, you know, I actually thought my liver would get me or something like that, you know. Um, but after that, he came back with this series of, you know, recordings on his own, as I mentioned, with Jim Hall uh, at the start. Uh, but these sort of guitar the Jim Hall and his personality really created that mood, and then you add in the bossa nova craze that kind of mm-hmm. happened at that time. So throughout the '60s into the early '70s, there are some great Paul Desmond recordings. When you're ever in that cool mood, actually, it was after I had listened to this, I wanted to go back and hear the original. So we had a rainy Sunday afternoon today, and uh, so I put some of that on in the background. And uh, one yeah, of the great the things mis- about the Mrs. and I did some bossa nova dancing up on the uh, second floor there, so that was kind of... That,
0: that is the great thing about streaming. You have all these, like, forgotten albums just yeah. at your disposal. They're, they're usually on there, too. It's really amazing. So that mm-hmm. was good.
1: Yeah, yeah. and uh, so that's a interesting th- kind of uh, journey back in time. And then we go up to the modern day for the next album. Not a tribute, but this is kind of interesting. The title, All Things Are. Hmm. Yes, it sounds very buddhist and existential type of title maybe it's just missing a few words but this is another album on the smoke sessions records uh it's uh, the leader is kevin hayes but uh, it features kevin hayes ben street and billy hart kevin hayes seems to be an interesting kind of guy he's a grammy award-winning jazz pianist composer he's also a singer songwriter who's released an Recording of uh, his own songs uh, and singing also on those tunes, and uh, he's you know received a lot of press—New York Times, Downbeat magazine, and so forth. Uh, he's been a guest artist uh, with lots of people. He recorded with Nick Brignola, Chris Potter, Joshua Redman, Nicholas Payton, among others. He did a uh, piano duet pro- or duo project with Brad Meldow. Uh, modern music on none such. And uh he's also been on tour with uh James Taylor, Sonny Rollins, John Schofield, Joe Henderson, lots of different players. And uh so he's got his hands in lots of different projects. Uh I'm told that uh let's see, what is it? Two thousand I look for this one. I can't find it on streaming, but he released uh a recording called New Day, which is actually a track on this album, one of his originals, but uh, he performs his own songs and uh, he does a performance of the Jimmy Webb's Highwayman, which I really want to hear because I want to see that other (laughs) side of his personality. Uh, And also just this year, if you look, he's done an album uh, with some other musicians that are all jazz versions of Led Zeppelin songs. Wow so, <laughs>
0: I can't even imagine What that <laughs> would those, sound like Yeah those are really uh, that, yeah, Hard to imagine That just lets When it was yeah. when it's jazzed up I did hear a really cool Immigrant song though Actually Yes right, You, yeah, know, you, brass, you so, sent that one to I me. sent and, that to me And immigrant like, wow, song This is like Completely transformed you know? Immigrant song is on that Recording as well In a jazz version So <laughs> Yeah I, that song Doesn't seem to lend Itself to jazz But oddly it does I guess people have A better imagination Than I do yeah, right. I don't know So I here, like, here the, I like to think I do But anyway
1: We've got have a good imagination a uh, kind of intergenerational uh, recording, uh, bassist Ben Street and uh, drummer Billy Hart, who I think was had just turned 80 on this recording or something. So um, uh, he just certainly doesn't sound like it. Uh, got a mix of different tunes here. Uh, the first one is New Day. As I mentioned, it gets a nice loose feeling to start out. Kind of an even gospel beat feel to it and uh, after the melody the piano kind of diverges into a free time passage and then back to the groove and Hayes starts to open up uh, he has a lot of there's a lot of vocalizations in the background <laughs> actually through the whole recording I don't know if it's yeah.
0: I guess it's Hayes They're kind of yelling uh, encouragement to each other or yeah, something yelling, yeah. yelling
1: encouragement not quite as mm-hmm. uh, you know distracting as Keith Jarrett or something like
0: that. but Well, uh, well he's talking to himself. Like, yeah. He's just moaning or something. They, yeah. These guys actually seem to be talking to each other.
1: Yeah, and yeah. you get some uh, blues lines and also sort of outside the chord phrases intermixed. Then things suddenly get quiet and back to a kind of piano-only interlude on the melody and then back to the beat and finish. So you get this from the first track, you'll get the loose sort of framework of this recording. Uh, number two Elysia, it's a hypnotic intro to a minor melody, and he improvises over this in freely changing the mood at will. It goes from slow lines, fast runs, chords. Uh, he's a very Im- immediate player. You know, he he change on a dime what he's feeling and goes into. Then the tune sort of mellows out into a nice bass solo and returns to the piano, and the solo kind of reaches a soft and pretty ending uh track three is called unscrapulous hmm. uh, well wow, i wonder title. what that means <laughs> well it's a dismantling yeah. of uh, sc- uh scrapple from the apple, uh, oh, from the apple. yeah okay which you'll, you'll hear it getting taken apart here and is done in a very spontaneous uh way it's a lot of fun uh four for Heaven's Sake, uh, nice piano intro, and then Hayes shows a real tender ballad touch here uh, on this jazz standard. There's lots of space in his playing, uh, very melodic lines. He doesn't waste notes, and it's really beautiful to the end. Um, well, I noticed as a pianist, he has a very light left hand. Uh, his right hand is really dominant with what he's doing. And He's almost sort of kind of feigning things with his left hand sometimes, but it matches the way he plays. Five is...
0: well, I just want to say that particular track is uh, the midpoint of the album, so it kind of it takes a mm-hmm. little um, departure from from the rest. Yes. I kind of like when they do that; that yeah, they yeah. put that kind of creamy center between the Oreo. Cookies, yeah, exactly, you know, it's kinda, very <laughs> creamy
1: and tasteful. He shows yeah. you a different side of his personality, uh, which right. it's doesn't like come the out
0: oyster in the shell, you know. On
1: the rest, because of the really spontaneous nature of this recording, which I'll get to when uh, I get to the end here. Five is right. all things are, which is sort of an existential reduction that's how you describe it of all the things you are you'll recognize the chord the chord progression but Hayes sort of plays on the outskirts of the original melody and mm-hmm. then uh, a really imaginative, pian- imaginative piano solo but they bring it all back uh, into the melody which has some uh, interesting drum solo breaks there so it's a you know very familiar song that's been recorded you by so many jazz musicians but you know you find something new and uh distillation of it
0: and that is of course the title track so
1: yes yes okay uh six uh
0: sweet caroline but not neil diamond uh, right. this has got the. that was really... confusing i was kind of wait looking for that neil diamond uh, melody yeah. but no yeah
1: uh just got a uh bass groove intro with a funk funky bluesy piano melody Uh, The piano kind of moves the harmonies around in these waving outside lines while he keeps the funk and rhythm with these left-hand cadences here. Get a nice uh, digging bass solo, and then an intense piano exploration free from the harmony, and then it slips back into the funky groove. So this is sort of a kind of dirty digging uh, tune to go into. Uh, Seven is Twilight. And uh, this has got a nice bass intro. The piano enters with these high chords and short phrases, and a melody kind of emerges over uh, some nice drum brushwork. And here again, you'll notice the light left hand that he has, and then uh, things pick up with the uh, exploration in the piano solo. Tasty, very woody bass solo, and the piano comes back for the melody and uh, rather quiet ending to close out the album. So Hmm. how this is recorded, and once you hear the explanation, if you listen to it, it all made sense to me. Um, So you've got three guys from different generations here, and this is the first time they've ever played together as a unit. And this recording was done after a single rehearsal. So what they're able to do here comes not only from their musicianship, but... A sort of shared concept and the relationship that they get here. And this is uh, this is from the uh, Smoke web page. This is uh, from uh, Hayes uh, quote. Uh, this is the way I like to play. As someone who loves improvisation, I do my best not to repeat myself. I like the unplanned, and I tend not to be directive. These musicians already have a direction, which tends to be open. This isn't a free trio. We're not playing free jazz, but we're playing the With the tabula rasa spirit, with as little as possible figured out other than the bare bones. And I think that describes what you hear here. Um, You know, if you like kind of jazz that happens with as little arrangement and predetermined structure as possible, and you want to see what talented guys can do, you know, with just calling a tune that they all know or an agreed framework with some kind of structure, that's exactly what you hear. Here, you know, they're the kind of musicians who can take an idea and trust that they're going to be able to work with that and play off from what they each contribute to that, you know, recipe, never having tasted it before. And so you get this great spontaneity, quick turns into unexpected territories, new explorations. That all happens in this album. It sounds really, really fresh on all the tunes, and uh, so it's very creative, spontaneous playing. With a high level of musicianship and, and highly
0: music, yeah, me too, and highly musical too, one of the things that struck me is I think all of the pieces in this, but especially the opening ones, the one or two, um the pianist would start um playing and he played this sort of abstract, almost angular sort of um sort of, I guess you could call it a melody, but some sort of figure. And then, um, you know, you can call it the bones of the piece. And, um, then, uh, the bass and drums came in and they're kind of like this expert chiropractor. They just cracked it into like, uh, the proper place. It was really yeah, yeah. amazing. You know, I heard, that really just kind of caught me several times on this album. It's, it's really, uh, you know, people who kind of know what a good tune sounds like. And they kind of just all together just shaped it into something really amazing.
1: Yeah, uh, and I like you know Hayes is fairly young, but I like that he's he seems to enjoy this kind of risk taking and going out on a limb type of thing with and he's got a, a mix of you know some things familiar, but he's not going to play them the way you expect them to be played, and he wants to do something new with it. So it, the overall impression is something new and fresh, and uh, you know kind of daring, and uh, he, his his technique is great his style yeah, is uh, a lot of fun. Uh it's a yeah, really good recording.
0: Taking, risk taking is what music should be about.
1: Yeah, and you get that always good sound of the uh Smoke Sessions records, uh, very enjoyable.
0: Mm. Uh, organic real sound. Yeah, yeah, they have magical engineers at that place or something. I don't know or I uh, yeah, I think exceptional I think they equipment right know. in the
1: club there. So I think well, you know you get you know that live kind of interplay sound and it always comes they figured
0: out. They it out though. That's a yeah. it, it sounds good on um yeah on uh, in, on the recording
1: yeah I, I think i listened to this 3 or 4 times this week i liked it so much so yeah, um, yeah. and uh then the last jazz and last recording for this episode oh this one is uh kind of unique too uh yeah. this is our latin jazz pick and this is by alex conde and it's uh descarga for bud on the Seda Jazz Records. And uh, the, oh, this one is a really unique. Uh, it really 22. is. This is yeah. uh, Alex Conde. He's a highly acclaimed pianist from Valencia, Spain. And uh, after he graduated from uh, Conservatorio José Iturbi. In Spain, he came to Berklee College of Music in the mid two thousands. Then after that, he got his master's in jazz piano from Queens College in New York City. Hmm. And I remember uh, Queens College.
0: Yeah. I didn't go there, but <laughs> and uh, yeah.
1: yeah, so he's performed around the U.S. and abroad, from Blue Note, New York City, Panama Jazz Festival, um, and uh, he's got a number of. Albums, five albums as a leader, actually. And uh, this work here is a second in a series. Uh, I believe his earlier one was uh, Descarga for Monk. So yeah, I actually
0: downloaded that, listened to that as well. Yeah. I was kind of curious about what that would sound like. And so what he's doing here
1: is uh, taking jazz works and uh, kind of mixing them with his uh, flamenco Spanish background and not only that, but other um, Latin music type of uh, influences, and uh, so what you get here is kind of a reimagining of uh, one of you know jazz's most uh, great piano figures, Bud Powell, here on the, mm-hmm. these nine tracks, and so he's using these sort of bebop standards or original tunes by bud powell and he's bringing in a, a fusion of uh, caribbean as it well, actually is written in his description on his website a fusion of caribbean and ibero-american musical lore i don't think i've ever seen that word before ibero-american
0: ibero-american but, uh, yeah does and, that mean like hispanic <laughs> well, i don't know yeah, well, I, iberia I mean, is, is spain yeah, and Europe, peninsula. yeah yeah, yeah. but okay. uh, ibero-american
1: <laughs> Uh, I yeah. don't know, but uh, it's this maybe is it's, quite Maybe he's
0: made it up for himself. You know, he's from Spain. He's kind of, he's be. in America now. I don't know.
1: Uh, so, all compositions by Bud Powell. And we've got Alex Conde uh, on piano and uh, making all the arrangements. Uh, John Santos on congas, bongos. Uh, Jeff Chambers on double bass. Sergio Martinez on cajon and djembe. Uh, Mike Olmos on trumpet on two tracks, uh, Jeff Norell on the uh, steel pan drums, and uh, José Luis de la Paz on guitar. And, uh, and people
0: uh, doing hand claps too. Yes, <laughs> on the flamenco <laughs> There's hand There's a lot claps. of flamenco elements yes. in this recording. Yeah, there are.
1: And uh, so mm-hmm. we begin with uh, the fruit, which is done in uh, buleria style, which is a fast flamenco rhythm in a 12-beat cycle. Uh, this one starts with a piano vamp and the balleria uh, beat, and the trumpets on this track uh, here, and the trumpet plays the melody in unison with the piano. The piano has a first solo, and uh, you get kind of a taste of what you're gonna see on this album, which is a combination of kind of boppish lines, and then he has some rising chord figures over the Spanish beat, and here you'll hear the cajon. Uh, Lightly in the background And the flamenco claps there Uh, The trumpet solo comes in When the vamp comes back after that solo And does the uh, melody and solo again And then there's a percussion jam On the vamp when it comes back And then back to the melody And then uh, finally they close it out The trumpet and piano trade over the vamp And so it's a nice fun start To the piece here, giving you the taste of these flamenco elements that are going to come. Second track, another Bud Powell tune, Oblivion. And this is done in tango style. Uh, starts out with a real heavy, low kind of intro vamp. And then a light introduction of the melody over some Latin percussion in a tango style. And, uh, whoa, Conde shows some really fast fingering here with these 16th note figures in his energetic solo. And he's able to do these kind of figures uh, with two hands, which he does else place, elsewhere on the album in other places. And uh, those are really cool. Uh, they calm things back down and get soft with the melody again, then back to that funky vamp and the fast fingers to the end and uh, changes to some really high note runs over a slow beat at the end. So this is kind of a cool tango number here. Uh, Number three, Bouncing with Bud, uh, but not as you've uh, heard it before. This is an Alegria, which is uh, a conte chico flamenco uh, form. And, uh, of course, from Cadiz. uh, And this one is really cool. It starts with this kind of two chord ominous uh, flamenco intro, uh, which gets you in a kind of trance. And then it suddenly transports into that happy melody from Bouncing with Bud. Uh, So, interesting contrast. Conde solo here has a lot of fast lines, but a lot of space too. And uh, in those spaces, you can really hear the, I think it's djembe here with that kind of uh, open drum ringing and more clapping. Um, Some more of those two-handed 16th notes. Uh, figures running in his uh solo, but also some nice chord playing too and then uh it transforms into like a full latin uh piano breakdown uh with uh, piano chords right before the end so sort of completely changes the mood uh from the you know beginning with the flamenco the bebop melody, and then this so you go through a lot of different uh soundscapes on this one. Uh, Number four, uh, Dusk in Saudi, which is uh, done in the flamenco solea form here. This is a soft ballad treatment, and uh, the percussion lightly fills in the gaps in the melody. Uh, He adds in here, if you know Bud Powell's piano style, if you ever heard his uh, recordings, there's some very Powell-esque runs that are sort of peppered in for seasoning here, very tasty, and uh, it ends with chords really down low on the keyboard. So uh, a nice treatment of this. Uh, Five is uh, Wail, W-A-I-L, and this is done in uh, Calypso style, a very funky bass and left hand together Opening in a calypso groove. And then when the melody comes in, uh, the piano is uh, doubled up with a steel drum, uh, you know, with mallets. So that's kind of fun. Um, The solo piano takes a turn with some light percussion uh, peppered in, and then everyone joins in again while the piano continues the solo. We get like chorus after chorus of bebop ideas in the solo, and then it turns more Latin y uh, in his solo before he returns to the melody, and then the steel pan drums join in again. So <laughs> kind of hmm. uh, interesting uh, bebop and calypso, and then some other things mixed in here. Uh, number six, uh, uh, Parisian thoroughfare, And this is done in a flamenco style of Buleria al Golpe. Uh, and so the intro chord sequence starts, and this tune includes guitar. Uh, and then the guitar and piano join together sometimes on these really fast run chases uh, some really fast picking in the guitar along with that and then there's kind of contrasting sections of funky guitar strums and funky piano chords uh, and a kind of curious a very short and quiet guitar solo also in here and then back to a piano solo before it fades out Track 7 is called Hallucinations, and this is uh, sort of a more, uh, I don't want to say generic, but maybe what we expect more from modern Latin jazz. Uh, We have a happy melody with lots of twists and these really well-defined cadences. Uh, Piano solo starts kind of softly and goes along with uh, some syncopation and also some bluesy seasoning as he builds into faster lines. And then uh, we get a big... Chordy climax before an electric bass solo, and then the piano returns for another time around the melody and repeats the final phrase uh, until we get to the end. Uh, number eight, we change things up again. This is uh, Tempest Fujit, and it's a rumba. And uh, so the trumpet comes back here, We've got a nice fast minor key rumba, and the trumpet and piano share the melody. Then the piano rips into a really fast line solo out of the gate on this one. Uh, the trumpet comes in and on a solo and sort of explores uh, outside of the chords at the beginning of the solo and, and continues a kind of high tension sort of atmosphere. And then we get a, a piano breakdown uh, here joined in by the percussion and they keep building it. Uh, this track's a lot of fun uh, going through this rumba. Uh, rhythm before they go back to the final melody. Uh, number nine is Celia, and this is also Boleria. A very funky intro figure here, uh, which is uh, cool because, in addition to the other figures, there's sort of a one-note repeated, a uh, piano figure in the melody, uh, despite what's going on around it. Here, I thought this was really uh, well done merging of bebop melody with the Spanish rhythm uh, in a way <laughs> probably no one else may have ima- been able to imagine. And then after the you know, the Bud Paul bebop melody is expressed, then there's a flamenco vamp over this hypnotic bass figure. And uh, Conde builds this modal solo with ascending lines, and he really builds tension over this flamenco element and then he comes right back into the major melody of the tune so it's a really big contrast between you know the flamenco influence and then what's in the original tune here then we get uh, some percussion and claps that drive everything along another big piano so that's sort of peppered with all kinds of things big chords uneven lines fast runs that build more and more and then kind of a repeating Chord bass pattern in the piano that's getting softer and then building again more modal interview intervals that bring the melody back uh, into the upper octave. So there's a lot of things going on in this tune. Uh, there's a lot of things going on in the whole album. So it's a very uplifting recording. It's very positively charged and will put you in a good mood. And it's a really interesting and fun merging of you know, this Bud Powell bebop, you know, just. You know, real be real bebop music yeah. if you if you know his music, but mixing in this variety of flamenco know yeah, other, other Latin, Latin, percussion. Other really, Latin American it really, rhythms. Um, it all comes together really yeah, well. It I comes thought. together it was he's, really he's able to pull it off so that it sounds, mm-hmm. you know, just like you know, of course. Why didn't somebody else think of this? Uh it's a lot of well, fun. Probably because they couldn't do it. I mean, they couldn't do it. Was it. Really good. And yeah, Conde he has a great technique. Uh he plays very passionately and then, you know, you feel like you're invited to join into the fun of uh, mm. what he's uh, cooking up here. So, you know, how can you go wrong? You can't. Uh, Un- unique. It's great. Unique. a A really listen. nice Latin jazz album that's, uh, you know, very creative and uh, has a lot of different elements in it.
0: Yeah. We are big fans of Latin jazz here at uh, Adult Music, are we not?
1: <laughs> yeah. So check this one out and yeah, uh, yeah check out the Monk one too. Uh, yeah, so. I like that as well.
0: Because I, I, I love Monk's music in general, so it's just really cool to hear it like that. Well, yeah, the I'm not, <laughs> you know, flamenco elements.
1: If we got any uh, Spanish-speaking listeners, let me know. I'm not sure because there's no description, but descarga to me <laughs> sounds like uh, in Spanish, it's like the word for downloading something. So uh, I'm not sure. I don't, if, think, you like, could, like, I don't what, think you could. I don't think you could look
0: this up. No. Well, I did, did we, but uh, yeah, it did yeah, I couldn't up.
1: get a. I couldn't get a real idea of what he's aiming for in the meeting. If he's like downloading Bud Powell into the, you know. No, oh, it's. it's I, I got it right here in WikiHow.
0: So. It says a um, a jam session of the tradition of Cuban music. Oh, so okay. It, there you so go. it's like
1: jamming for jam session for
0: Monk. Yeah, yeah. All right. In his in his there own unique go. way, so it's a lot of fun. Um, so, so you got to go, you got to do the, um, the oxymoronic research on Wikipedia. <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't so, think
0: that, I think that, I think that inter Wikipedia in internet research, I think that's an oxy, a 21st century oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, here in nice collection of, you know,
1: tributing in a, in a new way, uh, here completely reimagined, And then in the Jensen, we get, uh, you know, paying good respects to the great Paul Desmond, but some unexpected elements, too. And then, uh, you know, Kevin Hayes is uh, sort of on the edge of, uh, you know, non-free jazz, but uh, just seeing what will happen with these interesting uh, ingredients. So I enjoyed all of these recordings this week. Yeah. Yeah. Nice Except there. for the Schoenberg. <laughs> well yeah, you that, you
0: enjoyed all the jazz ones. Okay. <laughs> I enjoyed the jazz
1: ones and I enjoyed all of the uh
0: the orchestral ones. I enjoyed yeah. the idea behind the Schoenberg recording, but uh yeah, the performances just, didn't really come off for me. Maybe maybe if I could well, hear a different
1: a different uh recording of that one. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Christine Schaefer, and uh, there's also an old one by Jane Manning uh, with the Nash Ensemble, conducted by Simon Rattle. That was uh, pretty much a classic when it came out on the Chandos label years and years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd I'd be
1: willing to uh, hear it again in a different, in a different voice. (laughs) I've heard, (laughs) yeah,
0: yeah, I've heard. The thing is, I've studied it. I've heard lectures on it. So I kind of know a little bit about it. So I kind of right. You really, yeah. You know, once you, once you know something about the work, and Schoenberg himself said this: if you listen to a work like again and again, you start to become used to it. Like you kind of know what it's uh, what it is. And it's one of the gifts that recordings give us. Even jazz, which is supposed to be really spontaneous music, there's sort of an, an irony to like a, a jazz recording, you know, because you're going to hear the same performance right. over and over again. But nevertheless, uh, it's it's how you learn really. It's it's you can get familiar with it the same way children get familiar with. Um, the narrative uh, elements of stories by hearing the same book read to them again and again Right, and the best jazz
1: solos have this sort of inevitable quality about them that when you think oh this was a spontaneous composition of a melody Mm -hmm. but it couldn't have been any other way and you know the great jazz masters uh, Coleman Hawkins uh, those kind of players you know when you hear their solo it has that inevitable quality about it and uh, right. you know, I think that's where it it meets the highest expression, uh, even in improvised music. So,
0: I, I often wonder about children. They they hear the same story again and again. It's like they're trying to like absorb it or something, or remember the elements, or do something. Uh, I wonder if that happens to us adults when we listen to music. Like music is the adult version of uh, stories. <laughs> you know what I mean? It may um, be for
1: some people. Yeah. Yeah. People like us. But I,
0: one thing I notice is that I have recordings that I bought back when I was in my twenties, thirties. And when I hear them today, they sound different, but you know, you've changed. The recording hasn't changed. You've changed. Like it, it's funny how you just hear things differently. It just kind of tells you that something has uh, gone on. Yes. You know, it's uh, it's not like you hear it better or you have a deeper understanding of it. It's just different. Yeah. yeah I, that kind of, I don't know. I'm trying to work out what that says about, uh, memory and, uh, the years passing and things of what it does to you. I don't know.
1: Don't think too much about that.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: the the answers could be disturbing.
0: Well, pretty soon it'll just all be over so it... <laughs> No. But <laughs> it doesn't before
1: that we have a lot more music to listen to and uh Well there might be music
0: afterwards too. We don't know. But at we least know. we'll get to hear it on recording before we've that. We've got to we've so, got to you know, listen to as much as we can while we're here and uh, indeed. Share, and enjoy. Share those uh, observations. For me that's what music that's what life is really about, is like, you know, good music has something to it, something about it. That pre verbal thing that kinda clarifies everything. I don't know. Goes what it to is. that deeper
1: root inside. Yeah.
0: So there you have it, folks. It's been
1: a fun time on episode 18 here in both classical and jazz. And as we said, if you haven't checked out our special episode, Interview One with Mike LaDone, talking about It's All Your Fault, which we featured in episode 17 last week, please check that out. You'll enjoy his talk for sure. And once again, we invite you to I th- follow. I think I'm going to listen to it again, in
0: fact. I'm going to listen go, to it again. Because it too. was so yeah. interesting. Yeah. I invite
1: you to follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you take a moment to give us a rating or write a review, we'd appreciate it. It'll help us reach out to more people and grow our audience, which will be good, and help us expand this experience. And... Again, if you have any comments, questions, you want to contact us directly, just contact us at Adult Music, all one word, or I'm sorry, Adult Music Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: You know what we'd like to hear, because uh, we we're now 18 episodes in, and we're sort of wondering, do you like this format, or do you want us to start dropping in um, like musical examples? Uh, musical samples of what we're talking about let us know otherwise we're just going to keep doing it like this and well, we won't know. get
1: any copyright strikes like this so.
0: yeah we won't get copyright strikes like this which is a good thing but I'm wondering if we will the other way maybe we should start experimenting I'm we not could sure. try
1: yeah, we've, yeah, we could use some more people subscribing to the
0: Deezer uh, playlist so. yeah but before we do that I want some uh, listener feedback okay let us know which, if you want us to do that yeah we'll, well give I it am. a shot
1: if, uh Got a lot of listeners in India. I know that. That's our largest growing demographic. That's right. Is Number it, three.
0: They're number three? Wow. Number three. Yes. Uh, <laughs> U.S. and Japan trade off as Japan number is... one. Uh, oh, they trade Japan's off as the number week. one. Okay. Yeah. And uh, India is uh Now, we live three. in Japan, but who's listening to us in Japan? We don't have that many friends. Can't, <laughs> no, it can't be any of our friends. Because we don't no. go out ever. We just stay home and listen to music well, all the time. You know, we are uh,
1: on in in japan we will be placed higher in the in the browsing categories just based on you know the locale I guess, oh so, i see and on uh we're on was it pod dog which is a japanese app we're right at the top on there so i'm sure some japanese find it us uh, so there and and are listening they, they to might us. be
0: using us to uh, build their record collections that could be cool it, it could be
1: yeah. yeah. And uh, I got to
0: tell you I got to tell the audience something. When I first came to uh, Japan back in uh, the 1990s, early 1990s, you got to remember this was a CD had been commercially available for about 10 or 11 years by that point. And I one of um the guys in the town I was living in at the time had collected every recording of baroque music ever released. He had I didn't I you know I, he had all of them apparently. Now that was a staggering amount of CDs, um, even at the time. This is after ten years, and there weren't all that many. Like there are this you know now they now thousands of them come out every year. But um, it, it was really quite something to see. I kind of wonder how that worked out. If he's still doing that, I guess he had to give it up at some point. That was it was really crazy. I was, mm-hmm. I was I was I was I was lost in admiration for one of the first for his shelf po- space as well as his collection
1: the first places i worked there was an office uh yeah that had two guys in there and they were both bluegrass music fans and mm-hmm. i thought this is really weird because i could travel you know around cities in the US and try to find an office that had somebody working in there that was a bluegrass music fan and both of them had over 1,000 bluegrass CDs in their collection that's really amazing Um, they
0: really go for like a certain genre like all the way yeah so
1: you know Japanese music fans are very dedicated and uh, focusing Mm. on uh, what they like um, which is a good part about living here because the record stores uh, especially the used stores are really good
0: yeah, they'll um, often wind up informing you about your pop culture. Yeah, it's sort of yes. an interesting thing, well, which, which is kind of embarrassing in a way. <laughs> interesting jazz record
1: stories about us, some players. Maybe we can get into sometime uh where if it hadn't been for Japan, uh, certain players would never have been heard by anyone anywhere else uh, mm. just because of the big fan culture uh, here in buying recordings. Uh, so yeah, yeah.
0: It's an they still thing. buy. They, they still use even like for movies, they'll still use DVD and Blu-ray. Oh they yeah, don't uh, stream all that it's much. They, there is streaming. Netflix is, does exist here, but they uh, they it's do a both. collecting culture. It's yeah. a collecting culture. Collecting I culture. I belong here for that reason, but not for many others. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, we do have that collecting thing in common. Yeah, the, me thing me and the that. Japanese people. Yeah.
1: So thanks for listening and staying with us to the end of episode 18. And we'll be back next week, episode 19, getting close to that number 20 mark. And we'll have some more recordings for you. So we'll see you again next week on Adult Music.